millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Um, The thing that I want to talk about today um, is a slightly different view of the Stalinist five-year plans. Um, one of my dear readers emailed recently and asked for something on the five-year plan, so here you go. Um, it's all too easy to create this rather two-dimensional view of um, the five-year plans, that the uh, dictator Stalin and the uh, Soviet Communist Party impose upon the country, uh, a largely unwilling country, a model of industrialization that at great human cost uh, turns the country into an industrial superpower that wins World War II and uh, eventually achieves such feats as Sputnik later on in the 1950s and 60s. Okay, some of that is obviously valid, but it leaves out this idea of agency, of participation, um, the idea that there were actually plenty of willing participants in the five-year plans amongst um, Soviet workers and uh, engineers and scientists and, and, and all sorts. You even find people who uh, have a sense of contribution to the creation of industrial Russia whilst in the gulags. And I, I want to explore this a little bit more in this podcast Firstly, let's look at this idea of participation in the construction of socialism. After the October Revolution, there is an immense cultural outpouring as the the Tsarist regime that inhibited such things is swept away, and the energies of the people, in inverted commas, are are harnessed and connected by a regime that, uh, whilst um, stamping out various uh, anti-communist and anti-Bolshevik sources of opposition uh, seems to allow a a brief flowering of of cultural creativity. And this movement um, gradually uh, throughout the course of the 1920s is subsumed by a a wider and more populist uh, um, state-led sensibility that the revolution, uh, as a people's revolution, is something that not only everyone should participate in, but um, people who are loyal to the Communist Party, who their children are in the Komsomol, and they are considered, you know, good work, good work, a good working class origin, i.e., not kulaks or bourgeois former people. That this is an immense honour for them to participate in. 
there are all sorts of stories that you can come across of children who have been deemed to be of Kulak origin being excluded from the Komsomol, the uh, Soviet youth organisation, and being distraught, being suicidal as a result. Partly because they've been obviously isolated from the children that they thought were their friends, but also the uh, means by which they had some kind of participation in this new society that was developing has been curtailed. Now, obviously, we have certain ways of participating in our society, normally through um, individualistic pursuits, consumerism, spending, shopping, buying, and that kind of thing. So this is quite an alien concept, I think, to a great uh, a great many people living in the early 21st century, that um, a society uh, could motivate such passion, such commitment, and such, such love and devotion, if you will, through the idea of collective participation in building this notion of the future. Now, th again, this is central to the understanding of Soviet communism, this idea of the uh, un the unconquered, the unbuilt future. Uh, communism as an idea, Soviet communism particularly, looks to an imagined future consistently that at some point will be built. And this is an idea that is, you know, hugely, uh, hugely appealing at certain points in history. And in the 1920s and 30s, this is a very attractive thing to a great many ordinary um, working class um, Soviet Russians, and also to, in, in some instances, to the the children of the uh, former aristocracy and the former bourgeoisie, who, having decided, uh, some of them, to embrace the new society that they found themselves living in, had to try and sort of traverse this kind of rather perilous um, life where they were having to subsume their former identities hide who they had been, and create a new a new legend, a new myth about themselves, a new uh, identity, which should allow them to engage in, the, in this participation, and also, more importantly, to, to eat and uh, stay uh, out of the uh, reach of the uh, secret police. Now, this idea that we commonly have, and it's an, an easy one to slip into when you're writing an A-level essay, um, or whatever the equivalent wherever you're in the world is of A-levels, um, of the entire process of the five-year plans being this top-down, hierarchical, state-led concept. Um, again, it needs a, a bit of updating. I, I say updating. Um, Sheila Fitzpatrick, in her book Everyday uh, Stalinism, which was written, I think, in uh, the early 90s, um, has... Uh, really blown this one apart long, long ago. So I'm not claiming here to be doing much updating at all. I'm going to really talk through the ideas that she's already laid down. It's her Everyday Stalinism is a superb book, and I recommend it to you all. Um, the, uh, the idea that um, we have this kind of top-down vision of um, the five-year plans is, is only half the picture. Yes, of course, it is a centrally administered and a centrally imposed um, set of, of targets for industry to, um, to reach. But there's also an enormous amount of grassroots, bottom-up participation, much of which doesn't necessarily have to be coerced out of people. 
uh, much of which is uh, f you know freely given and um, again it, it it indicates to us that there was a degree of excitement and participation in the building of socialism and something and this was something that people uh, by and large across Russia in huge numbers were committed to and um, saw a, a value in. I mean, an example of this is obviously um, the uh, the cult of the Stakhanovite. Um, just to briefly uh, fill you in on the story that uh, you may well know, is Stakhanov was a coal miner from the Donbass who, in a 12-hour shift, managed to mine a record number of tons of coal um, and his motivation appears genuinely to have been to beat the quotas that were set down by the central planning authorities in order to um, advance the cause of Soviet communism by uh, encouraging other workers to follow his example, which was seen as a largely selfless act and an act which was ultimately for the good of a, a wider collective and not for the individual as the uh, workers supposedly in the, the capitalist world are motivated by, Stakhanov becomes something of a celebrity. Um, he is fated in the national press and uh, he also appears on the front cover of Time magazine, which again shows you that there was an extraordinary amount of interest in the building of the uh, new Soviet society from abroad. And I talked in a previous podcast when I was talking about the fellow travellers, particularly about Frida Kirchway and the nation, but uh, it cut across all sorts of um, uh, political persuasions in the American press. And there was generally a great deal of, of interest at a time when the, the world economy was slumping, that um, here was an example of a, of, of a worker who was doing what uh, clearly idle and lazy Western workers couldn't be bothered pulling out of the hat. And around Stakhanov builds a legend, and other workers and other teams of workers across the country try to outdo his record and try to um, earn for themselves... Um, extra rewards and perks and bonuses. There is a, it's a strange um, relationship between the ostensibly selfless nature of what they're doing and also um, the gradual incentivizement by the, uh, the Soviet government to uh, encourage a new generation of model workers to emerge. And throughout this emerges a Stakhanovite movement and they are honoured with medals, uh, the Soviet Order of Labour Valour, for example. And also, Stakhanovite, um, various chosen Stakhanovite workers appear in documentary films for other workers to see. And they not only extol the virtues of hard work, but they show um, the uh, audience around new dream homes and apartments and bungalows that have been constructed to reward the Stakhanovites for their efforts. They demonstrate in their homes the kinds of fashions and tastes and interests that the modern, sophisticated worker should um, buy rights and, and should aspire to. There's a very interesting process at foot here. This isn't just about 
creating tons of coal and uh, targets for um, the production of steel and concrete. It's about creating a new kind of Soviet citizen. And it's fundamentally part of the project that the, uh, the Bolsheviks had in mind, really, going back to 1917, of creating this sort of new Soviet man. The old kind of Soviet worker, the old oppressed Soviet worker under the Tsar, was poorly educated, often illiterate, uh, lived in squalor and lived in filth, and um, had, you know, and this this is, by the way, I paraphrase, this is a kind of a, a version of things uh, that the, the, the Bolsheviks perceived, and many of those Bolsheviks were um, very, very middle class. Um, there was a sense that the revolution could civilise the worker and could bring the worker up to... Um, uh, the standards of being a, a kind of an entirely new class of person, someone who toiled in the factory by day, but um, read Chekhov at night and Shakespeare and was fabulously well-educated and also was civilised and well-mannered and well-presented and had a lovely, lovely modern home where everything was clean and nice and tidy and ordered. Stalin introduces in the mid-1930s this programme called Kultonost, or culturization and he hoped that the Soviet worker would, would not only become intellectually cultivated but would leave behind a lot of the kind of the unkempt and scruffy and um, uncivilised uh, attitudes and um, beliefs and behaviours of what was really peasant Russia and so there was um, the, the Soviet regime discourages smoking it discourages um, men from having long or greasy hair or having beards, because again, these are all kind of signifiers of peasantness. Um, something that, if you've listened to this podcast on the subject of the peasants before, um, they, the Bolsheviks were very keen to really um, crush peasantdom in Russia. Um, they uh, didn't like, I mean, they tried to discourage things like swearing, spitting, and smoking at work. Um, Perhaps not with um, you know, the most extreme of penalties, but certainly with the opprobrium of the uh, the workplace party organisations or Komsomol if the uh, offenders were slightly younger. And so the five-year plans, um, there is a, a cultural element and a social element to the five-year plans that meant that there was it was not just, again, the production of um, raw materials, but it's also kind of like a, 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 a people production here, a, a social construction of the, the new Soviet individual, which um, was, again, one of the real end goals of the revolution, to remake humanity in the image of the, uh, the new Soviet state. Anyway, I hope that's been useful. Just a little quick bite of Stalinism there to pep up your day. Um, if you'd like to know more on the subject of Stalinism, um, you can get my ebook on the subject, which is Stalin, the Gulags and the Five-Year Plans. Um, it's a, a, a snip on uh, Amazon. Um, I've also, if you're listening to this from the US, my ebook on the Russian Revolution is for next week going to be a mere 99 cents. So... Get out there. Anyway, um, we'll be transmitting something to you shortly. And um, again, as I mentioned in my previous podcast, I'm still uh, looking to 
get in touch with as many um, budding ebook writers as possible. So uh, if you've got a good idea for an ebook, drop me a line. Uh, if not, look forward to uh, speaking to you all soon on the next Explaining History podcast. And you can get in touch with me at www.explaininghistory.com. Thank you very much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.